As we get ready to celebrate Christmas, please accept this friendly PSA from the Scarlet Thread Society. Elves are not cute. They are evil spirit creatures. Do not let them anywhere near your children. Merry Christmas, folks. Welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society. We're here with our main segment of the evening. I have an interview with none other than Owen Cyclops. He's released a book project, Channel One, full of his collected comics with a smattering of commentary. Uh, How's it going tonight, man? It's going great, man. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an absolute thrill to be doing this with you. You and I have been Twitter mutuals on and off for a long time now, and I've been admiring your art for just as long. You're really a tremendously talented fellow. Cool. Thanks, man. I'm, uh, I'm glad you feel that way. That's very uh, flattering. Yeah, with some people on Twitter, people ask me, I always describe it as like posting alongside people. You know, you see people posting, but you very rarely ever talk to them directly. So yeah, it's cool to be here. Yeah, yeah, I think I can echo that sentiment. There's a lot of faces around you that come and go. A lot of people headed the same direction. It's a, I don't know, an eight-lane interstate highway is the way to put it. The information highway thing always seemed kind of like a meme until you reach stages that are like this, and you have social media, which then seemed to validate it more than other phases of internet existence i suppose (laughs) yeah totally so with that in mind i suppose i want to ask right off the top how did you get into making comics i know you covered this a little bit in the first commentary section but off the top of your head in your own words yeah it's it's really funny man because it's i mean i guess it's always kind of a long story when people ask you about your life but it was really a long windy road because I got into art very indirectly. Uh, I usually don't talk about it, but most people probably wouldn't expect. I actually got into art through graffiti and street art and things like that, which probably seems pretty random, but kind of fits, you know, young, rebellious, uh, anti-society, something's up with society. Let's do graffiti about it, I guess was my, was my model there. And from there, I drifted into more like fine art things, which again, seems like a huge jump, but I wanted to learn how to actually, you know, do art so I could be unhindered. And then I just never went back to the street art and graffiti world. And then I floated for a really long time. I knew I liked religious art, which again, seems like a long road to comics, but long story short, I think eventually what I gravitated towards in art was reaching people and touching people in a certain way. Uh, there was a long period where I was doing really serious, dark paintings and they were pretty big, you know, and I'd show them to people and people say, oh, you know, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. They're really nice about it. But then I realized when you show them kind of a almost simple, interesting drawing, they had a totally different reaction. And gradually over time, I just shifted more and more and more towards illustration, doing interesting, weird things with drawing. Uh, I realized I could weave more information into it. And that became my main practice. And then with the comics, honestly, it's really funny because I first started making them as a little bit of a joke. I was pouring all my time and energy into making these images that I love making. And then as a joke, I posted some comics online. I think I actually tweeted like, you know, my manager said, this is how I get popular. And I made these like really stupid, relatable comics, kind of just poking fun at that medium. And after that, I was like, you know, maybe there's something here. And I just fell into it. It kind of snowballed out of control. And now it's at least half of what I'm doing all the time. Sometimes more than that. Sometimes it'll go a little bit less. But now it's an indispensable part of my visual arsenal, you could say. Absolutely. Are there times when you sort of miss the street art graffiti style? Because maybe this is just me talking off out of my you-know-what, but it seems that there's still elements of that style and aesthetic that are detectable in your work, and I, for one, really enjoy that. Yeah, that's cool, man. Thanks. Um, Yeah, in a way, you could say that I really gravitated towards a lot of the less... um, I don't know what a polite word is for, like, standard. I don't want to say stereotypical, but a little bit more of the weirder manifestations of those styles. 
really weird bit of art history, I guess. But in Europe and Australia, especially, they have sort of their own little graffiti and street art subcultures that are very different than America. And that's what I got really into partially because of the style and ideas behind it. Um, so the visual style probably is still there a little bit. But, you know, honestly, what I if I miss anything about it, it's probably that it's a direct communication method unmitigated by anything to the people around you. And I think in retrospect, that's really part of why I got into it. There's a cool like anti-society, like, yeah, we're going to go out and like, you know, destroy some stuff flavor to it that I'm not into anymore, but I was at the time. But if you really think about it, that's one of the only mediums where you can go out and just write something on a wall and communicate directly to people unmitigated by any media or money or even your personality or anything like that kind of explains my approach to posting online also. So if I miss anything about it, it's that. It's that you can go out and just do something. No one's telling you what to do. And then you're hitting someone else's brain unfiltered. That's really interesting. I think specifically in the context of some things I'm going to bring up a little later on here. But I have to assume that just based on reading some of these in brief, you're familiar with the concept of egregores, right? Oh yeah, dude, definitely. Okay, so we'll we'll get into that when it's a little bit more appropriate. I had a couple of comics specifically I wanted to talk about or images really that were touching on that theme. But first things first, I've gotta ask, or we have to talk about right in your introduction in the book, you discuss the king in yellow being an influence. Uh, yeah. Would you care to say a little bit more about that phase in your life or what you were thinking as you wrote that, as you came to that realization? Yeah, definitely. Well, it's a little bit downstream of another development. If I was going to just chart my uh, d- development in a few steps, the big one that I think resulted in me getting here, getting here onto your podcast, is that I, I had an art style. I was making art. I had my whole setup. It's almost like, you know, I had the last piece of the pyramid, pyramid, perfect image, you know, putting the last brick on top. And I stepped back. And at that time I was really into Buddhism and meditation and things like that. And I kind of stepped back and I was like, great, I have my whole operation together. Perfect. And I really asked myself like, but what do I want people to take away from my art? I hadn't really thought about that. And I thought, well, I guess I'm kind of trying to promote like Buddhism or something, I guess. And then I was like, that doesn't really, that's not really what I'm doing, I guess. And, and then the whole pyramid crumbled and I was like, wait, what am I trying to convey to people with this? You know? And the King in yellow really made a big impression on me, mostly honestly, just because of the concept in case people don't know, basically the concept is that there's this, uh, tale inside of the story where anyone that reads it goes insane And that really lodged really deep in my brain and got me really focused on the idea of, you know, if you really take in a piece of art, whether it's a book or whatever it is, it really does change you. And sometimes that power is irresistible. Sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. If you go to a museum and you see a really powerful painting, you can only resist that to a certain extent. And it got me really obsessed and focused on that power of art and I got really interested in, it really dovetailed perfectly with all of my interests already, but I got really interested in, you know, things that make people go crazy, quote unquote crazy, or, you know, forbidden information or things where it's like, don't read that. Like, you know, you don't want to become that kind of person or, oh, that's like a dangerous thing to watch or like, that's a dangerous thing to read. And I had already been interested in that, but it really pushed it over the edge because I'm really obsessed with information and breaking down informational structures and things like that. And it got me really obsessed with how that works, why it's the case that there can be these things where, you know, someone reads it and they're just not the same person anymore. Like what's actually really going on there? Like, are they stupid or is there something under the surface or what's the deal? And that really put me on a path where if anyone's familiar with what I do at all, it kind of makes sense that that was a big fork in the road where I turned (laughs) down that direction. Yeah, and I made a special note of that as you were discussing it, both through the commentary and eventually in the area I believe you had labeled as Comic X. I've shared that same impulse really 
my entire life. It's been the central impulse of the work I do on this podcast and on other podcasts now for a number of years. That sort of delving and desire to understand more and more masses of information. That really spoke to me, man. I feel that absolutely in my gut. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, we probably have a definitely a similar like archetypal overlap there. I think there is something about certain people, probably probably everyone that listens to your podcast. Um, but you know, for some people, for me, when like the flat earth stuff was breaking in like the news and media, that's like a perfect example because I could see it in my friends where it's like either you're the kind of person where you hear about that whether it's dumb or smart or whatever, either you're the kind of person where you hear about that and you say, wow, that's crazy. And you just are like, I'm I'm never going to look at that. Or you're the kind of person who says, wow, that's crazy. I'm definitely going to look at that. It's like a split gene that just forks people perfectly where either you're put off by craziness and you're take other people's word for it or almost like an obsessive extent. You're like, okay, yeah, I'm definitely going to turn that rock over, obviously. And that's actually a recurring motif through a large portion of this, of the works, at least early in the book, right? Is that sort of, wow, that's crazy mentality. And the, these two divergent directions, you can see that in so many of the characters. And it seems like you're really playing that up. Was there a specific end to that, that you kept going back to that one sort of dichotomy in people? I mean, obviously, it's just an interesting theme on its face, but was there a point you were trying to make by continuing to draw on that? Um, yeah, it's a good question, man. Well, part of the answer to that is that for me, writing and art, I'm really an, a visual art person, and somehow I happen to get by with writing because of my art proficiency, I think. What I mean by that is that I'm really not a writer. I'm not someone who hones and has the skill of writing. It's just that I can port whatever skills I have in art over to that field. And that's only relevant because like for me, it's not like I ever sit down and I'm like, I'm going to write something interesting or I'm going to write a comic. The idea, I really see it almost like a painting and I see it from start to finish and I'm like, oh, that's going to be a comic. Perfect. Um so it's just relevant to the question you're asking because, you know, it's not like I was like, okay, I hit this theme time to move on. It's really more just like things naturally crystallize. And then when they don't, I can't force it. So I would say that manifested not in like an obvious way, but in a pure way, that theme, maybe like five, eight times in there, depending on how you want to count it sometimes overtly, sometimes subtly. Um, but eventually I did try to put it a little bit more under the surface. I, the weird thing about being an artist and you probably experienced this too with like podcasting and stuff and you know, everything that you do also um, is that you get good at like doing one trick, let's say, but then you don't want to just keep doing that trick over and over and over. But paradoxically that trick is like part of what you do. So you kind of have to figure out how to rework it and stuff. So once I saw it was a pattern, I tried to push it a little bit further, but I think that is a really central theme in, in what I do for a variety of reasons, whether it's because that kind of, happened to me or I'm fascinated with it happening to other people, or maybe it's just the base layer of everything from like cults to religion, to conspiracy theories, to, you know, everything. Um, it's just like a thread maybe running through everything you could say. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, entirely appropriate. And I'm sure you did that intentionally. Yeah. And you know, actually just to, just to answer the question, like a little bit more pointedly, you said, is there like a point for me, it's almost like endlessly fascinating. And again, I'm sure it's the same way with you where like someone consumes something like that or goes down a rabbit hole and then they're still like a sane person, but they just have this view that's like insane. But then if you talk to them about it, it actually kind of makes perfect sense. And it really sort of just elucidates this whole thing of like, well, you know, what is, it's very cliche, but like, what is like being sane? Like what is being normal? Like what are you know, the ways that we view reality, it kind of just throws a flashlight on all that stuff. Yeah. And I could interrogate that question. I could torture myself and my own experience with these topics endlessly trying to find an answer to that. And I'm, <laughs> I'm positive that there's not an answer lurking or there's not one that'll satisfy because you're entirely right. It's becomes a fundamental question of what is sanity 
because you know it's entirely possible that maybe I've gone entirely off the deep end, <laughs> but I haven't accepted a mental framing of myself as having gone off the deep end. So it leaves this open question of whether or not I'm the nutty one or the world is really just accepting on its face these patently absurd things that are needed to keep the world functioning as it does. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, a lot of days you're like, am I one of the last normal people or am I the wave breaking of like just a new wave of like insanity. It's kind of hard to tell sometimes. Shifting gears a little bit. I did want to talk about the banana woman comic. <laughs> Something about this just really spoke to me and I'm not entirely sure just what was going on there. So I've just, I've got to ask a little bit about that, whether it's the background, how you decided to write that, or just what's going on with the banana. <laughs> Man, that's such a perfect reaction. I feel like the perfect reaction I want to everything that I do is someone saying, well, it's really interesting, but I don't know why. <laughs> it's perfect. Um, yeah, so uh, in case anyone hasn't hasn't read the book yet, I can't, I can't imagine. But uh, there's a comic in there where basically this guy um, – there, his his girlfriend shows him this video from the fifties about the this Chiquita Chiquita banana mascot. It's this like sultry woman. It actually exists, by the way. It's real. Um, and he kind of just goes insane and gets like super obsessed with her. Just like put it that way. Um, yeah, man. Uh, well, that's kind of a perfect example of what I was talking about before of like putting things like under the surface. And I feel like a lot of what I do is like roping things into like a certain lens or worldview and kind of threading things that don't normally go together together to make its own like um, image of reality. If that makes sense. Uh, a less weird way of saying that would be under the surface there. I think maybe why part of why that one really struck a chord is that it really roped together a lot of things that I'm interested in. Like uh, I don't do this just, just some people probably don't know who I am. So I, I don't do anything like a culty, but it was part of my interests and naturally it's relative to all this stuff. Um, something like chaos magic where people kind of get to the end of the road, let's say temporally and historically. And in terms of like philosophical lineage, in terms of the occult and these esoteric practices, and they kind of get to this point where they're like, well, yeah, I mean, if we're, if, if you're just developing these things in your mind and using your mind to change your perception of reality, and there's these things like they're kind of like egregores where if enough people think about them, they kind of become their own entities. That's like an oversimplification, but you get to this point where you're like, well, isn't like Mickey mouse kind of like an egregore then like, I guess. And isn't like Disney kind of this <clears throat> magical operation, you know, birthing these egregores. Oh, I guess it is. Yeah, kind of. And then what about like, TV shows on Nickelodeon, like I guess SpongeBob is kind of like an egregore, right? Um, in case people don't know, in Chaos Magic, people will even do like weird rituals to like, I don't want to say channel these spirits, but like get in touch with the spirit of like these sort of like pop culture entities. Things like that aren't off the table because, you know, in a way, if you're really neutralizing the whole playing field from their perspective, not mine, but you know, how is something like Mickey Mouse different from? you know, a Greek God that someone just made up and then it became a thing because it was a thing. It's like a meme. It's like an egregore. So we're kind of in the same playing field there in their view. Things like that are really interesting to me. Um, and I think that comic kind of touches on that. The idea of like, well, you know, if some corporation or company like births this entity that all of a sudden lives in the, you know, what, like mental sphere, like the astral plane, yeah, like the new sphere, the collective unconscious. Yeah. Yeah. To be tapped. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think there's something about that that I, I really just find like really fascinating. There was a really weird, it's it's like tangentially relevant. There was a really weird um, uh, subset of internet stuff that was happening a long time ago that really drifted out of fashion, but it's also running under the surface for a few comics, especially that one. Have you ever heard of an otaku kin? Do you know what that is? I can't say that I do. Okay, I dude. Okay, I epic. feel like I've heard otaku as a slur, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so way back in the day on the internet, there was this thing called otakukin, where basically it was this idea that like, you know, people get obsessed with like anime and stuff like that. I don't have like an aversion to anime. I'm not like into it, but I, I don't have like a obsession or aversion to it. But it was basically these people who like... Um, 
you know, there's all these different weird groups online who are like, you know, other kin, like, you know, oh, oh uh, my body's a human, but really spiritually I'm like a wolf and they find each other and they talk about like how they're spiritually wolves or, you know, whatever. And there was a group of them who had this kind of like theory that when someone writes fiction, what they're actually doing is like puncturing into another reality and like taking information from that other reality where it's real. And they use this kind of mechanism to explain their extreme kinship with fictional characters. So like when you watch like an anime or a fictional work or something that was taken from like another sort of world, you could say, and those characters are real. So maybe you could be like a reincarnation of them or something like that. It was kind of just this weird little internet, like uh, people being weird online. Like who knows if it was like middle schoolers or like just weird guys or whatever. But that idea really stuck with me. And I think you see that in that comic and other ones too. Just this idea of overly identifying with fictional characters and maybe weaving that into a kind of almost like religious narrative, I find really, really, really fascinating. I think it's under the surface now with people, you know, getting a little bit too obsessed with like Harry Potter and things like that. But back in the early internet, that was a really pure, awesome manifestation of just like very strange behavior. (laughs) And it really stuck with me. Yeah. And you know, I am, that's the sort of thing I spend a lot of time thinking about. And that's sort of an undercurrent of my own, I'll call them research projects. I spend a lot of time on mind viruses, egregores, whether or not ideas can gain some sort of semi-sentience of their own. Nice. The conclusion that I always keep coming back to is, well, they absolutely can't. Obviously, an idea can't think for itself, but if you imbue these images and these ideas with enough energy... There's no reason that darker things out there can't wear them as suits to access your wetware. And I worry about that an awful lot with things like that. Um, People becoming just way too into these explanations of how they can breach reality. And people thinking that it's possible to reach out and touch these other worlds. Because that's absurd on its face. But, you know, for a sufficiently mystically minded person, it's not insane to think that there are things out there that can touch you back and interact back on you. You know, it's the occultist meme words of opening doors, right? Yeah, totally, man. Yeah. And then it gets kind of extra crazy when you factor in other things like, you know, even just drugs in general. People, you know, kind of go to other worlds on drugs, whether those are real or not, you know, that kind of like takes it a step further. There's also another kind of layer of like um, strange analysis for me when it comes to exactly what you just described and then aesthetics because aesthetics are a hundred percent related to all that stuff. Also like every kind of weird other world or like even strange worldview or even just normal worldviews have their own aesthetics. So then, you know, going into the deeper parts of that get like really crazy. Um, so, yeah, man, I'm, I'm definitely also really into that. Well, speaking of that, the next comic I made a note of here on my little sheet was the the mushrooms and the DMT with Joe Rogan. This yeah. cautionary tale of getting way too into psychedelics, or at least that's the message I took out of that. What was what was the artist's intention there? Yeah, well, um, so there's there's a comic about a guy who starts doing like mushrooms a ton, basically. And there's a comic about Joe Rogan doing DMT, just kind of like sub sub narrator for people that haven't seen the book. Um, yeah, man. Well, I mean, that's kind of pretty inextricable from like my own past and like my own situation. Um, long story short, you're definitely I mean, I got to assume you're familiar with Terrence McKenna, right? Absolutely. Okay, so perfect. So yeah, so long story short, I... That the mushroom comic in there is really about me and Terrence McKenna because I was the maximum level of down. Um, and just some people probably don't know me again. So yeah, like in terms of doing psychedelics in a spiritual capacity, the way that I usually describe it to people is that I basically went as hard as you possibly could in that domain without actually going to like live somewhere crazy or join a cult or something like that. Like I basically went as hard as possible as you could while still having a relatively normal functioning existence. Uh, So yeah, the mushroom comic uh, it's basically about that. It's about me like being in my room, 
doing a ton of mushrooms, listening to Terrence McKenna. And it kind of perfectly dovetails with what you just said, because you start to feel like you're tapping into this kind of like larger sphere. You know, this, it starts to feel like you're not really poking into like a blank landscape. Like there's stuff in this realm, like what's going on here. And with DMT, it's the same thing. I did a bunch of DMT. I used to be really into that also. Um, I spent a pretty long chunk of my life back then um, reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And then I knew this Tibetan painter and I was hanging out with him a bunch and like really cracking out on Tibetan art. And then I would come home and like smoke DMT. Uh, I guess whenever I talk about that, I have to say like, I don't really, I'm, I'm Christian now, so I don't like advocate for that. So I just, it sounds really cool when I say it that way, obviously, but it's not like a viable spiritual path in my opinion. So I'm not like, yo, I used to smoke DMT, um, but I did. And uh, part of the comics are about that also, like going into that realm and seeing what's going on there, but almost more importantly, like what it reflects back on you about like your view of life and your worldview and your hardware and software, so to speak. Um, So yeah, that was a big part of my background and uh, yeah, naturally bleeds into the artwork for sure. You know, I'm skipping over a few notes I made here, but I think thematically we can strike while the iron's hot here. And I want to bring up the Esoterica flashlight comic, putting the batteries in and realizing it had been the light of Christ this whole time. That really spoke to me and my path in particular, because I can say that I've been dabbling on the outside. And as we talked about the quest for knowledge, I've been reading and diagnosing and threshing and pouring over this info time and time again. And at the end of the day, all I keep seeing are LARPers who never come back to the light. Like the point is obviously allegorical and so many of their own masters claim it is. And many of them reject the message of the allegory at the end, but it's always right there, right? It's just come back to Christ. He is risen and they don't understand their own motifs, seemingly. Yeah, it's really interesting, man. Yeah, um, a note for people if they want to check it out. Maybe you actually you you'd probably find it interesting too. There's a really interesting book. Um, it's by Rudolf Steiner, who you and some people are probably familiar with. Maybe everyone is. I don't can't tell what is popular anymore or not. I've been in my so room for in too long. Audience specifically, people are going to know that name. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I figured. Um, so Rudolf Steiner has a book. Uh, there's an, actually an audiobook version on YouTube that's really good. And it's called Christianity as Mystical Fact. And he goes through like all the different, um, you know, pagan stories and Greek mythology and all this stuff. And he kind of winds it up to basically what you just described where it's like, yeah, actually he's even more kind of like um, roped into its, its reality. And he says basically that all these, uh, you know, means of gaining spiritual knowledge were meant for pre-incarnation times. And now that we're post-incarnation, incarnation of like Christ, obviously, that's why it like feels different and that's why it's different and why we can't like go back to the previous way. It's, it's super interesting. I started to throw that out there in case people want to check it out or maybe you want to check it out. But yes, yeah, so there's a comic in there where a guy's holding a flashlight, you know, and he puts a battery in that says like Christianity basically. And it starts working. The flashlight's labeled Esoterica. I guess I just gave away the whole comic, but it's only one page, so it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but well, yeah, the man. The beauty of it is, is, you know, with these comics, I would hang that one on my wall. You can give away the story <laughs> all you want, and they're yeah. still just fantastic, every single one of them. Yeah, word. that's awesome, man. I'm glad you feel that way. Um, yeah, well, for me, I drew that. I also had another one. There were, there were a few, like, little doodles that didn't make it in the book for whatever reason. Like, maybe I didn't have them, like, high enough quality or whatever. But I had this doodle that I drew a long time ago where these two guys are eating this like dead horse. It's not as cool as it sounds. It's like really poorly drawn, to be honest with you. These two guys are eating this like dead horse. And they're like, oh, there's some meat over here. Like, oh, let's find some meat. And then behind them is this huge like banquet table full of meat and everything that they're not looking at. And the banquet table is supposed to be like, you know, religion and like theology and things like that. And the horse they're picking apart, the carcass is supposed to be like, you know, the scraps of these like fragmented occult views and things like that. And yeah, I mean, ultimately I did come to that point. I think a lot of it was realizing that whatever I was finding cool in the occult world was kind of cribbed from Christianity anyway, like ranks of angels and 
things like that. But on a larger note, yeah, I mean, maybe that metaphor is the perfect way to say it. I started to feel like I was just picking through the scraps and that it wasn't really adding up to a totalistic systemic view. And then once I was like, wait, the missing piece here, I mean, it sounds so like evangelical, like born again, which I don't identify with. I don't have a problem with it, but that's not like my background. But you're like, oh, like I'm trying to solve this equation. And the missing piece is that like God is real and the ramifications of that. And then all of a sudden, all the puzzle pieces fall into this systemic view that totally makes sense. And you start to ask these questions that you weren't asking before. Um, And that was a really, really interesting time for me because I still had one foot in that world a little bit. And, you know, if you're hanging out with people who are really into like ayahuasca or these other, you know, worlds and things like that, I mean, whether I'm right or wrong, I don't think I'm right about everything, but you start asking them questions and you can tell that they've like never thought about it, dude. It's crazy, man. Like you could talk to someone who's done ayahuasca like a hundred times and maybe they've seen these entities or talked to these entities and stuff. And then I would just ask them like, you know, how do you know that, that, that entity has like benevolent intentions towards you? Like some people are good. Some people are bad. How do you know that you can just take that experience at face value? And dude, they've never thought about that in their life. Not, not all of them, but a lot of them have never thought about that because they've gone in with the presupposition of, you know, I'm holding this little fragment. They don't view it as a fragment, but I'm holding this piece and I'm just taking it at face value. But once you integrate it into a much larger cohesive picture, I mean, of course you would like naturally ask that question, right? Yeah, you'd think you would. And it's always been my assumption people would just ask that question anyways. But it's you're right. There seems to be a shockingly smaller number of people who do than you might expect. And maybe that speaks to a little bit of natural paranoia that I've had. But I can't imagine speaking to any given outside force that's speaking into my mind and just assuming it has the best intentions unless it does something to demonstrate that you know people talk about the machine elves or seeing shadow people on benadryl and all these other things you know there's overt dark themes in the existence of some of these allegedly hallucinatory beings but even when there's not I don't understand why people would just think that it's okay that those things are there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally, man. Well, one thing that I kind of, I never explicitly sat down and said, okay, I'm going to make a comic about this and try and try and land this message. You know, it doesn't really work if you sit down, like I'm going to get my, my little moral across. But um, one thing I tried to get at, I think it's running like maybe on the deepest, like lowest frequency at like, you know, 1% volume with a few of the comics. So maybe I should hit it like explicitly again, but I think the answer to that question, why they don't think about it usually, not all of them, I'm not generalizing. Well, I am generalizing, but I'm not a hundred percent generalizing is because that situation, this, the, the psychedelic experience, the way it's colored in this time and place in particular, it is a worldview and partakes of a worldview 99% of the time. And that means that they don't analyze the presuppositions of that worldview. So like what we just talked about, like taking like entities and stuff at face value, that's a perfect example. But even other things like, you know, you talk to someone who's like into ayahuasca and stuff and they're like, yeah, like this is like thousands of years old. Like people have been doing this forever, but you're like, what's the evidence for that, dude? You know, there's literally none. There's literally, literally none. It doesn't exist. So you're just saying that it was, that, how do we know people were doing it 3000 years ago? I mean, if anyone, people here, people here definitely know about archeology span and stuff. I mean, they're not digging up like 3000 year old wooden cups in the Amazon, dude, like all that stuff rotted away. So they could have been, or they could not have been. And then if you start presenting them with like counter evidence of like, you know, people just assume that every psychedelic has been done since the dawn of time. But there are cases like, uh, like Salvia, for example, in Mexico, there's not a historical, really, really, really long-term use of it there. As far as we can tell, people started using it pretty recently, actually. So that's just one example. You know, there's all these presuppositions and because you're part of that worldview and because you're like, well, I'm just being a rational person. I'm not, I don't have a worldview. I'm just doing psychedelics. You don't really analyze those presuppositions. And that's something else that I find really interesting. It kind of spills back to what we were talking about before, where, you know, am I a normal person or a crazy person? When people have a worldview, they very rarely dig into the nuts and bolts of it. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't think someone who's like, well, I'm just doing mushrooms in my bedroom has their own sort of a quasi religious view. But for me, 95% of the time, that's the case. 
Yeah, and I almost wonder if the psychedelic industrial complex doesn't encourage some of this a little bit. It seems to me like it's a materialist's release valve for a spiritual impulse that the quote-unquote powers that be don't really want to explicitly promote. It seems to me that it's in quote-unquote their interest to present us with something that's consumable that's vaguely replicable and they can just point to it and say look here is your spirituality consume this and you will see things as shamans have been seeing them allegedly for hundreds and thousands of years no need to question what's going on around you this is the religion of the ancients sort of deal you know just another lever on the control mechanism, I guess, is what I'm getting at. But Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I, it, whenever I'm analyzing like really big picture stuff, it could be this or it could be anything like at a certain point, something I always come back to is it's almost like intentionality and um, coordination stops mattering in a certain way. Sometimes, of course, it matters. Like, do you know this guy worked for this organization and this guy, you know, these people are pushing this thing because they're owning this stock or making money or they're part of this group. Sometimes that's like the key. But there's this Bible verse that I always come back to where it says the locusts have no king, yet they go forth together in bands, meaning that there's no coordination between a swarm of locusts. Like there's no one person leading it, but they're all united by their common um desire and motivation. So they form this like complex wherein no one person is leading and maybe they're not even aware of like how they fit into the larger picture. And for me, that's kind of the situation with all that stuff, especially with the psychedelics. Like I'm sure some people are pushing intentionally. I'm sure some people are kind of just rolling along. I'm sure some people have the best intentions in the world, but when you zoom out far enough, it's like, wow, this puzzle piece really fits in, in a crazy way to a lot of larger stuff that's happening and going on. And uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of like a schizo moment where you're like, wow, this thing that used to have to go to the Amazon and go up a river and meet like a little tribe of people to even try and get, now it's like not only in Brooklyn, but you could probably find it in like every state now and people are just doing it and Vice Media is like, do it, do ayahuasca, you know? Um, it's pretty crazy, man. I think, I think actually it's like just starting to break. I think we think that it's like, oh, it's been cool for a while. But for me, I think like that piece of the puzzle whatever kind of bigger puzzle picture you're making. I think that one, that one's a good puzzle piece to keep an eye on in my opinion. Yeah. And you know, not to praise myself too much here to bang the drum for an audience that's already heard this from me too. This sort of stuff is just reaching its crest of a research phase for a more mass deployment. You know, with the way they're talking about now applying these drugs to soldiers, PTSD and other people suffering from nominal mental illnesses not that these aren't serious things but things that are being uh, presented as mental illnesses when there could be other factors at play and that's a topic i'll leave for another time but uh, suffice to say my point in this rambling is that i think you're right while people here have been woke to this for a while it's hasn't even actually reached normiedom yet you know the story of that is not over yeah, dude. Like I know some like younger, uh, people, you know, I have like a younger relative and just a few weeks ago she texted me and she was like, I'm at this party and people have like a DMT, like vape pen. And people are just like doing DMT at this party. And when you think about what I just said that you used to have to like, you know, go to the Amazon or like know some guy. And now it's just like at these parties, like, and she's like a normie. I mean, no offense to her, but she's like a normal person. Uh, so yeah, man, it's, it's a, it's a hot topic. We could, uh, it goes on. It goes on indefinitely for sure. Right. And that's, that's one I could sit here and spend all afternoon on Yeah, for the audience's sake. And for your sake, I'm not going to do that, but <laughs> it's fascinating to me. It really is. Yeah, for sure. I want to shift gears a little bit next. If you'll allow me, I just want to talk about, you've got one comic in here that really speaks to me. It's four panels, one page, uh, art money company and needing popular content. <laughs> and specifically that last panel where we're looking at the ideas 
the alchemy of grilling, the flat earth map, footnoted with the dog, man. I just love it so much. <laughs> uh, my Twitter handle used to be the Dogman Respector. And I used to live in southeast Wisconsin, which is famous, or, well, not famous, famous in some circles, perhaps, as the hotbed of North American Dogman sightings. That's so epic. The locus of the Dogman Renaissance as a cryptid. That just, that just really spoke to me. <laughs> because shortly before seeing that for the first time, I had already done this for myself. I had footnoted a map with Dogman sightings. And I was at such a personal lurch at the time. I was jumping from dead-end job to dead-end job that I just had the time to do that and to make these really complex footnotes on a series of maps. And I've still got them. And I'm still dedicated to my hunt for the dog, man. <laughs> but it's just a, it's a symptom of what people do when they've got time for this. And, you know, the comic portrays it as, oh, how could this actually be relatable? But I saw that on there, and it was something that I had already done and already <laughs> been working on. And it just, it really hit home for me. I thought that was super cool. I think the alchemy of grilling was really interesting, too. Maybe I have my timeline confused, but I seem to remember having seen that for the first time before the grilling memes had really taken off, too, and <laughs> escaped velocity in the meme sphere. So I guess, I don't know. I wanted to give you a little bit of praise for that one. I really love it. Awesome. That's dope, man. Yeah, I think that was just before the summer, and everyone was like, oh, you should do Alchemy of Grilling, and I actually really wanted to, but then you know, I had a lot of stuff going on this summer. I probably should have. But uh, yeah, it's a really funny one. You know, it's funny, man. Like, you know, all the way back in the beginning, you asked me about like making comics, but I kind of feel like, actually, I explicitly mentioned this somewhere else in the book, but like, I feel like there's something about like, oh, it's just like a little stupid joke, but it actually gets people in this place where they're like, wait, like you just said, like, wait, I literally did that. You know, there's something about that that really like draws me into it. And that's like a good example of that one. Cause like, yeah, I mean, anyone that does anything online, like, you know, the the standard is like, oh, you know, you got to make relatable, like shareable content, you know, but then what people actually want is like, you know, the most, the most insane, like oddly specific niche thing you can possibly think of is like actually what people think is cool. Um, I have a very like odd relationship to like the concept of like relatability, like it's got to be relatable, you know, uh, so I guess maybe that's what that comic is like really about. I well, like I said, I loved it. I thought it was phenomenal. You did find it relatable, so it actually it actually worked perfectly. I put myself in a twister thinking about that, just what relatability is and whether it's something to pursue or whether there's a meta commentary on not being relatable. I personally draw that back to the sanity insanity thing, but Yeah, well, you know, actually, man, it's it's super interesting. I actually did go like pretty hard into it and um you know, something that I was like working on for a little bit in terms of like some other like weird informational projects. But like, since we touched on it, it's just, it is interesting. It's worth noting that like relatable used to mean something else. Like back in the day, relatable meant it is able to be related as in I could tell you it, therefore it is relatable. But now it means something totally different, which means you can relate to it, which is totally different. And like the use of the word as we use it now is actually very, very, very new. Um, in fact, like some older like spell checks and stuff don't even have relatable in it. That's probably not the case anymore. But back in the day, they didn't. It was It's like a newer thing, which probably says something about the zeitgeist in some way. I'm sure it does. Uh, the next note I had on my little sheet, and at this point, we're just taking notes, but that's fine with me. If I'm cool, man. I'm, I'm chilling here. I got my dog. I'm, I'm just chilling, man. This stuff's fantastic. But the Fishman Tulpa series. <laughs> yeah. Right? So what was going through your mind as you were making this? And I don't want to spoil the contents of it any too much. So much as have a conversation about the concepts that are obviously there and around it. Because uh, I take a fairly literal approach to those things, as I brought up earlier in the show here. You know, I really believe these mind viruses are real. 
and that these things, even to an extent, are real beings, but they're not what we think they are, and they are not the faces that we give them when we interact with them. So maybe from your perspective, what was going on as you were thinking and writing that? Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, well, it's an interesting like meta note. One thing about the book is that uh, I think I think what makes it like unique, aside from like the actual literal content of it, is that there's this like meta narrative where you know, speaking of being relatable, you know, if you're online a lot, I feel like you kind of eventually have to choose one path or the other where you're like, I'm going to kind of commit to a persona and act like really professional or there's the other path of like, yeah, I'm just like a normal guy, like figuring things out, you know? And I really picked the the path of like, yeah, I'm totally open about like figuring things out. So that comic is just an interesting note in the meta narrative because there's this overarching theme of the book, which is me figuring out how to make comics. So you mentioned it before, but like in between each chapter, I kind of describe like, okay, I tried this and it didn't really work. Or like, I tried this and actually worked really well. And like, here's this next chapter where I tried this other thing. So I'm kind of open about the fact that I'm like experimenting as I go along. So that one's kind of an interesting note, just because it's probably not the answer you were looking for. But one aspect is that I was like, I wonder if I could, what, what happens if I turn up the creepy knob a little bit? You know, I was like, I wonder just what happens if I just grab that knob and just turn it from zero, maybe just up a little bit. And that's part of how that comic came about. Uh, but more interestingly, the ideas in there. Yeah, man. I mean, there's something about, you were calling it egregores before. I feel like calling it egregores kind of imparts a literal ontological reality outside of people's heads to them, which I'm definitely a hundred percent open to. For me, the almost like inside the head version of that is archetypes. I know that's not exactly what archetypes are, but that's kind of how I think of it. Um, where, sort of like an egregore where once you put this thought form out there and enough people impart a reality to it, it kind of starts to take on a quote unquote, like life of its own. Almost like the yin yang inverse of that is like an archetype where if you start to make like a new archetype or start to participate in an archetype, it's almost like that becomes like a a, a slot and you start to fit things into that slot and people start to, you know, conform to that slot a little bit, if that makes sense. Um, so I was kind of thinking of that when I made that it's about a guy who comes up with this concept and it kind of takes on like a reality of its own, but that's something that's really fascinating to me because yeah, it's almost like the inverse of an egregore. It's almost like instead of putting out the, the being putting out something that has like its own life force and everything, it's almost like you put out like a cookie cutter or put out like a shell and people's minds fill it in. You know, that's something really interesting to me about the online space, especially like by virtue of most people being anonymous, it's almost like we crawl into and fill out these archetypes, you know, and people even willingly do that. You know, you check someone's bio and sometimes it's just a list of archetypes like, uh, you know, Zoomer nationalist, uh, trad Catholic, um, you know, a bunch of other things, you know, not that it's a bad thing, but they're like, here are the archetypes that I've sort of like. I'm climbing into so you can see who I am from your side of the screen. Sure. Here's the image board that makes up the personality I'm presenting to you so that you can parse it and interact with me in this space. Yeah. Yeah. And actually interesting note, because we talked before about Terrence McKenna in Terrence McKenna's worldview, that's an inherently negative thing. In my opinion, in his worldview, that's like a pathology and like a bad thing we do. Um, That was part of my break with him is I started to feel like, well, it's not really inherently bad. Maybe it's not good every time, but I don't think it's inherently bad, you know, to say like, if we were talking, if we just met, if we just met online, we didn't know each other. Maybe I'd say, well, I'm American. Now you know something about me. That's part of my archetype form. Let's say it's not a bad thing. Um, But it gets kind of complicated. And part of what that comic touches on, because we can kind of tinker with those archetypes or like start to make new ones. And that becomes a very weird game because even if you lock it into the fully mundane world, which I don't, but even if you did, it starts to be this weird game where you're like tinkering with these forms and then those forms exist like in other people's brains, you know? Like sometimes people will say, this is a perfect example. Sometimes people will will post something and someone will tag me and be like, wow, this is so Owen Cyclops. That's kind of funny if you think about it because that means that I've put out this kind of archetype form in a way and now someone else sees something and they're like, oh, wow, that's so Owen Cyclops. Like that's so part of the part of the form. And if you really think about that, that's a pretty weird 
thing. I love it. Obviously, it's part of what I do intentionally, but it's kind of interesting, man, that you could put out this like vibe anchor or like cookie cutter and then people start to like fill it out for you. And that's part of what that comic is about. Yeah, I think vibe anchor is a really, really good word for that. Uh, I have a more complex interaction with the idea, but I think that you gave me a lot of really good food for thought there in terms of associating it perhaps more with archetypes than with egregores or spiritual mask wearers. Yeah, man. Yeah. And then it kind of like filters back into the whole fictional world thing, which is part of what I'm really trying to do now, even more so with the comics that I'm making now, which is like in fiction and especially art, maybe it's maybe especially comics because there's writing and pictures. So you have aesthetics and words together and then there's characters. That's a whole nother archetype thing. But there's something about fleshing out a whole world that turns what I just said up to like 9,000, dude. Like the example that I always use and go back to is something like King of the Hill because sometimes I'll be doing something and I'm like, wow, this is like King of the Hill, but it's real life, but it's like King of the Hill, you know? And by fleshing out this world, it's like, it's almost like a mega egregore, like a fictional world that has its own way of being and way of talking and value systems. And the characters all conform to these certain modes of acting. Like it's almost like a hyper- mega egregore on steroids yeah i'm i'm speechless because it's it's a lot to think about and i think you're right obviously but man it hits like a truck full of bricks every time you realize it yeah it's crazy man it's crazy problem with these weighty conversations you know it's it's a lot to process or it certainly can be I've got uh, two comics left to discuss, and if you'll continue to indulge me just a few more minutes, I've got two big questions for you. Yeah, I'm chilling, man. I'm, I'm just hanging out. Uh, obviously, there's the reputable online source image that I think so many people identified with because it was it was easy for people who are in the know, people who've been around, to pick out who those people were. <laughs> and at the same time, it was sufficiently obscure that it felt absurdist, even I'm sure to people <laughs> outside. And I just, I gotta say that was a master stroke, just a wonderful piece of art. Again, another thing that I would absolutely buy a print of and then promptly never explain it to anyone. <laughs> yeah, we should, we should have like a print series that, that is, that's a very like crystallization of like a certain vibe of like being on Twitter and stuff. You know, it's funny since you mentioned that one, one funny thing from my perspective that I guess obviously other people wouldn't experience in case people don't know it's, 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 you might've seen it if you're like in the sphere, but it's the comic where someone's like, Oh, do you hear that from a reputable source? And it has all like the different characters or different sort of archetypes again. Um, and the guy's like, yeah, totally. And one of them's like dog and one of them's anarchist garbage man and stuff. Um, but what's funny from my perspective is there were times where people were posting that and I would see in the comments that like a certain percent of people thought it was like a joke at the main character's expense of like, wow, this guy's so stupid that that's who he's listening to online. And then in the same comment section, there was another subset of people who got it, who were like, oh yeah, the joke is that those people are more reputable than anyone else. So it's always really funny to see it like leave the sphere and see like how people interpret it. But that was a really good like polarizing one. Yeah, I can I can only imagine that being the artist behind it, you have so much more exposure to that than I do. But even me, I've seen elements of that. I've seen that one, like you said, escape and really go wide. And I think it's it's delightful. That's really what I'm getting at is it's purely delightful. Nice. That's awesome. And speaking of delightful, the last one I wanted to talk about again, without spoiling too much of the content of the book itself is that first chill of fall image. Oh yeah. Really playing with color and it's the hooded figure just saying soon. And it's that one struck me at an aesthetic level. I really, really enjoyed the art there. It was a beautiful piece. Nice, man. I'm really glad you like that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting that that one like stuck out to you because a big part of what I do visually that I never really talk about is the seasons and seasonality. Um, I guess I kind of picked it up from studying Japanese art, but 
some people might know, some people might not, but in Japanese art, like seasons are like hardcore, one of the main things for sure. Um, and I really took that away as like a perennial source of like artistic inspiration. Like sometimes if I don't even know what to draw or paint, which is actually kind of rare now, honestly, but it used to be more common. I could just say, well, you know, right now it's spring about to become winter. That's a whole poetic symbolic universe, or maybe it's like the dead of winter. That's a whole thing. Or maybe it's summer with like a hint of fall. Like we were just saying, that's a whole creative situation. Um, Cause it gives you colors. It gives you themes and ideas and, relates to stages of life and things like that. So that's a big, if I bet if people look back through my work, you might see it, especially in color schemes. But uh, yeah, it's a huge thing I think about all the time, but I never really explicate fully. So do you think that connection plays with your talk about archetypes and your decision to lean on archetypes as much as you do in some of these images, is there a connection with season as archetype or am I reading too much into that? Maybe. Um, that's interesting, man. Well, this is going to sound like a ridiculous, maybe pretentious answer, but it's true. In my opinion, the seasons are almost like meta archetypes or they're almost like robes that you can sort of put over other ideas. Like, Fall is kind of a, I mean, most people could probably just intuit fall is kind of about like dying in a way, but everything's really beautiful. So it's this bittersweet thing. And then, you know, you have the harvest and it's fall. Whereas winter is like this bleak, you know, hopeless time. But then, you know, we have Christmas right in the middle of winter, like this flash of like hope in like the darkness. Um, And for me, I kind of fit other archetypes in there. Or they're like a meta umbrella to put over them, if that makes sense. Um, just because they naturally speak to like rhythms and, you know, almost almost within, this is a more clear answer, almost within every archetype you have, you know, it's Genesis, that's kind of like spring, it's maybe height and like full, let's say like perfect manifestation of it, that's kind of like summer, it has sort of like a waning uh, on the downcline, but now it's like still at its fullness in a way fall. And then maybe it has like a death aspect that being kind of like winter. So yeah, it kind of fits either like above or below it, depending on how you're imagining it visually. Um, It's like one lens to like view things through maybe is a, how I would say it in my own like personal estimation. Sure. I see where you're going with that. I think, I think that's as reasonable a way to put it as any, I think that's a, perspective of it that'll speak to the audience that'll get the point across yeah uh we're at the 57 minute mark now this is running about as long as i ever do these so i want to give you the one fastball question of this whole endeavor and then we'll give you a chance to plug some of your stuff cool so to put you on the spot here are there any conspiracies or supernatural topics or related sort of Fortean ephemera that you absolutely lean into and things you'd be willing to point at and say, real, no irony. I believe that. You should, too. Watch out for it. Oof. (laughs) Um, I mean, aside from almost literally all of them, uh, (laughs) honestly, I'm being kind of being honest there. Um, any that I totally a hundred percent lean into. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, well, yeah, I'll just go on. I'll just go unhindered down the list. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, we're at the hour marks. So I'll just go down it. Uh, I'm totally a hundred percent in on any kind of like shadowy organization, people planning things. I'm like a hundred percent there. Uh, some stuff in history being fake. Obviously that's a hundred percent true. Everything from like, you know, winners rewriting certain things to like maybe some ancient history things are like fake. Maybe I'm totally a hundred percent there, uh, but I'm, it's hard to lock into specifics there. Um, if anyone's checked out Fomenko and his work, I'm not totally sold on it. But one thing that I do think is interesting is the idea of like when this group over here and this group over here really far away talk about two different groups of people. Maybe they were like the same group of people or maybe, you know, weird little miscommunications like that coming to us from antiquity or earlier. Um, frankly, I'll just go there, man. We came all the way here. Um, I'm really, the most interesting one would be that I'm skeptical of a lot of 
things that we're told about like cosmology to an extent that most people would probably find unreasonable. Uh, I usually don't talk about it because people are like, oh my God, so flat earth, but I'm not like, I'm not like a flat earth guy. It's really not like that. But just certain things about like space and the earth and gravity and weird things like that. I'm kind of just floating in this space where I'm like, I don't know, man. It's kind of crazy. Like once you start questioning like these larger organizations and then you come back to yourself and you're like, well, what can I empirically verify? It gets really weird, man. It gets really, really strange. Um, So you could say that I'm the most interesting strange one would probably be that I'm like cosmologically agnostic to an extent that most people would see as insane they would find profoundly unsettling. I'm glad you decided to settle on that one as the big, (laughs) because that's not a huge part of what I do, but as a rhetorical flourish, as a sort of point to make the brand on and really make people think, get people on the wrong foot when I'm trying to introduce them to a topic. I love talking about how physics is just completely fake And while I don't actually believe that, there's forces that can be described a certain way that's replicable that allow us to build out from them. I think it really gets the point across when you start talking about, you know, molecular structures and particle physics. And man, are you kidding me trying to sell me this stuff? It also makes you see you look through a bunch (laughs) of pieces of glass and saw something. You're just going to build your worldview around those little somethings being real now. Come on. Yeah. It also makes you a weirdo. I know we're like over time, but just as like one funny example. So like I was on the phone with one of my wife's friends. We were like doing this like call with her basically. And she was like, you know, talking about things she's not sure about. And just to, just to pick one, she was like, well, you know, one thing I, I'm, I know that is real is gravity. You know, I pick up this book, I drop the book, I can see that gravity's real. And I'm not saying it's not real, but that's a really interesting example because people lived for thousands of years knowing that stuff fell without the theory of gravity. Like when did the theory of gravity come about? Right. So you start to become this weird person where you're like, well, even that is not something that you can point to in that particular way. You know, it just gets really weird, but I'm ultimately agnostic about it. It's not like I go to someone and I'm like, I figured out that like gravity's fake. But uh, yeah, it's a weird, a weird domain that I used to hang out in a lot. I love going there sometimes, but I have no like definitive claims. All right. Well, that was a extremely satisfying answer for me. I'm <laughs> As willing to lean into it as much as you were. Yeah, dude, totally. I've kind of built my personal archetype around being the, well, it's right there in the Twitter bio, right? Like you said, everyone advertises themselves that way. Uh, Art Bell, man, rest in peace. I love asking these hard questions. I love getting into the weird stuff. And I love being able to discuss it with people like you because I know... I can see your ability to sort of turn the object or in this case, turn the theory in your mind and the fact that you can sort of play with these things before you commit to them. It's really impressive. I really value that a lot in people and it's been uh, fantastic having this discussion about these things with you today. Word. Thanks man. Yeah. This was super fun. Yeah. Would you uh, do me one last favor before we hang up? And uh, run me through your plugs. Where can people buy this book? Where can they get their art? Where can they find you? Yes. Um, Well, thanks for letting me plug my stuff, by the way. Like I said, this is really fun. Uh, The main hub is Twitter. If you go to my Twitter, you pretty much see it all. Um, But aside from that, uh, the book is on Amazon. If you search Owen Cyclops or just search Owen Cyclops or go to my Twitter, it's there. It's on Amazon. it's pretty big. It's like 250 pages. It's seven by 10. So it's bigger than a normal book. Holding it is really cool. I worked really hard on making it like a cool, nice aesthetic object to live in like real life. Um, so that's the book. Uh, Twitter, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Gab. Also, I'm on Tumblr. I'm on like basically every platform trying to get my art out there. But Twitter's the main hub. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. I used to do a painting show, but I paused it since I had a baby. Um, my at is at Owen Broadcast, or you can just search Owen Cyclops. And I also sell shirts and prints and things like that. Uh, that's on my website also, or you can find it on my Twitter. Um, some of them are conspiracy-esque. Some of them are weirdo, mystical. So there's really something for everyone in the in the Owen Cyclops Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> yeah, there's something here I can promise now to my audience. Check out his stuff if you somehow do not know this individual. 
please go to his website, go to his Twitter. You will find something that speaks to you and you will find something that you absolutely should purchase and maybe buy four. Give them out as Christmas gifts. <laughs> cool, man. Well, thanks for your, your endorsement. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, man. It's been a legit treat for me. It's been a yeah. real pleasure. Yeah. I'll have to come back and we'll, uh, we'll do this again sometime. All right. Thank you.